0: Um, Ezekiel chapter 13. I, listen, I, m- I, months ago I was like, I, you know, I, I picked out like certain passages to preach through the book of Ezekiel, and I had planned to skip this one. And then as I move—I've been moving through Ezekiel, I just kind of feel like, where do I get off just skipping whole swaths of God's word? Like, it just doesn't feel right. And then I would read the passage and I'd be like, oh no, we definitely need to talk about that. Now, for some of you, um, you you'll feel a little like you don't want to talk about this because this passage focuses on false prophets and false teaching. And for some of us, talking about false teaching and false props, that people are teaching wrong stuff that's bad for all of us, is something that we ought sometimes associate with fundamentalism or like controlling or legalistic churches and stuff like that. And it's true, that historically, fundamentalism has focused a lot on how everybody else is wrong. The problem is, is that they just took a good thing too far. Um, because the Bible teaches everywhere that there are false teachers everywhere and that we mostly listen to them. <laughs> And so to say, hey, these people are too critical, therefore we'll never say another negative thing the rest of our lives, is to give ourselves over to complete delusion and to believe all kinds of lies and to not be able to follow God in any kind of meaningful truth. Does that make sense? So um, so we just have to preach all of God's word. I don't have to tell you. Like, you don't get to just skip stuff, right? Okay, I'm gonna read this kind of fast. I'm gonna read the whole chapter, okay? Here we go. Ezekiel chapter 13. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, O Israel, are like jackals among the ruins. You have not gone up to the breaks in the wall to repair it, for the house of Israel, so that the, so that sorry, the house of Israel, so that it will stand firm in the battle on the day of the Lord. Their visions are false; their divinations a lie. They say the de- Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they expect their words to be fulfilled. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares though I have not spoken? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because of your false words and your lying visions, I am against you, declares the sovereign Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations, and they will not belong to the council of my people or be listed in the records of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Because they lead my people astray, saying, Peace, when there's no peace, And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurling down, and violent winds will burst forth. And when that wall collapses, will people not ask you, where's the whitewash you covered it with? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. In my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind, and in my anger, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury, and it will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundations will be laid bare. And when it falls, you will be destroyed in it, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I will spend my wrath against the wall and against those who cover it with whitewash, and I will say to you, The wall is gone, and so are those who whitewashed it, those prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own imagination. Prophesy against them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the women who sew magic charms and all their wrists and make veils of various lengths for their heads in order to ensnare people. Will you ensnare the lives of my people, but preserve your own? You have profaned me among my people for a few handfuls of barley and scraps of bread by lying to my people who listen to lies. You have killed those who should not have died, and you have spared those who should not live. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against your magic charms in which you ensnare people like birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will set free the people you ensnare like birds, and I will tear off the veils and save my people from your hands, and they will no longer fall prey to your power. And then you will know that I am the Lord, because you disheartened the righteous with your lies when I had brought them no grief, and because you encouraged the wicked not to turn from their evil ways, and so save their lives. Therefore, you will no longer see false visions or practice divination. I will save my people from your hands, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Well, okay. I don't know if you know this, but people are annoyed at you for listening to liars. Do you know that? There's people in the world, and they they believe you listen to liars, and you probably do, and they're really annoyed at you about it. Because one of the things that's funny about human beings is, it's really easy to know like the worst part of other people's beliefs, and the stuff they've bought into because other people have told them to believe it, that is clearly nonsense. And then we get really upset when like people do that, tell us that we believe nonsense. But when, as you work through scripture, and as you work through the scriptures that specifically talk about uh, false prophets and false teachers and so on, it becomes really evident that the the perspective of scripture is that this is how most people behave. Um, Believing lies, listening to false prophets, and listening to false teachers among the world and among professing religious believers is not quite universal, but is the norm. The norm for human beings is to listen to liars. That's the norm. And the reason for that mainly is because liars tell us what we want to hear. That's why. Now, as we work through this passage, what should become pretty clear from hearing this chapter is that God's truth, justice, and glory makes him the enemy of false prophets, and that should work for us too, right? Now, you, you might say, why those three? because over and over God's focuses on these three things. One, that they are telling lies, right? That the work of a prophet is to tell the truth, and they are telling lies, right? Secondly, it is justice that they say things are going to be better if you listen to them, and things just get worse when you listen to them. That's what happens, both in terms of personal godliness and in terms of social interactions. And third, that you profane God when you do it. You make God look bad. You change people's expectations about God. People don't—people who are seeking to pursue God in faith and trying to live in godliness, you'll discourage them with your false statements. You take away their ability to see and savor the beauty of the glory of God because God is a truthful and just one. And you you encourage people who do not want to submit to God or look at him or see him for what he is to not do so because of the content of false prophecies. Does that make sense? And— God is the God of truth. He's God of justice. And he will not give his glory to another. We are supposed to be able to enjoy and be pleased by him forever because of his own inherent beauty, referred to as his glory. It forms us, it directs us, but it's also God's greatest gift to us. And because of that, he is against false prophets and false teachers. And if we are his— We should be also. I'm going to go through four key questions for this. The likelihood I will succeed is low. But um, the first is, what does God say about false prophets? The second is, what are some present examples? I'm going to, I'm going to do that, guys, because I feel like it's my responsibility. Third is, um, how do we discern and escape false prophecy? And third is, what is the real heart of the matter? Why are we so susceptible to this? So the first is, is that I'm going to go through um, that first part, which is, What does God say about false prophets? One thing is, is that we're going to have an abundance of them. Now, there are certain moments in history where God actively judges and destroys false prophets. So, for example, in this passage, he literally tells them, I'm going to kill you. They're in Jerusalem. Four years from now, the whole city is going to be destroyed. And when it's destroyed, God is saying, you're going to die. And no no one's going to remember you. You're never going to be recorded in the people of Israel ever again. You're going to be gone. I'm going to rescue my people from you. When he says, you will no longer see divinations and tell lies, he's not saying that you'll quit doing it, or that you'll quit. he's like, you'll be too dead to do it, is what he's saying, okay? Um, But, but that's not common. It's not very common that God does this. God did this here. He might do it a few other times in history. Um, But mainly what he does is he gives prophets to tell the truth, and he expects us to listen to them. And so one of the first steps in preparing ourselves for that is to realize that there's a lot of false prophets. And a lot of people, and not just people who generally tell us things that are false, but people who specifically tell us things that are false in the name of God, on the basis of God's authority and in God's name, and telling us that they've received the message from God. Do you understand? And so if you are skeptical when somebody does that, that's not anti-Christian. Being discerning, testing in the book of Acts, right? There's this, there's this city, the Brians, and they like, everything Paul says, they like they're flipping through their tours to make sure it's right. And they they, are—what's said about them is that's a very noble thing that they did. Does that make sense? Um, In order to get a note, a prophet is a prophet is somebody who God sends to speak against corruption. Prophets aren't mainly—their main job isn't to tell the future. Their main job is to be a a renewing office through the truth, right? So you have all these hierarchies of power—people who are leading and people who have control of things, and people are doing stuff, and they're all bustling. And what happens in all hierarchies, they're necessary for human organization and productivity, but they also naturally get corrupted because some people have more power than others. Does that make sense? And so there is this office of somebody from the outside who gets nothing from it, who simply speaks the truth and tells the truth, and the truth is supposed to have its own power, right? And that person is the last line of defense to renew corruption, which makes it particularly bad when the person in that office is corrupted. Do you understand? There is a specific sovereign and sacred duty on the office holder of the spiritual teacher and spiritual prophet to not allow yourself to be corrupted and to be fighting constantly against spiritual corruption because if the anti-corruption renewal office gets corrupted you got problems you understand it's like it's like in a society if the judiciary gets corrupted or the police get corrupted you got problems you understand so Therefore, a false prophet is somebody who does the opposite. A great way to understand what a prophet is, is read Ezekiel 13 this week in your devotions, and take all the negative things that God says, and just reverse them. Because the false prophets basically are doing everything prophets are supposed to do wrong. So if you look at all the accusations God makes, and you flip them to the positive, you'll get a pretty good sense of what a prophet is supposed to be like. And then you'll also get a sense of what a false prophet is like. Does that make sense? Now, there's an abundance of them. And as you go through the scriptures, you can see it all through the scriptures, right? Um, and so you might think, well, why does God allow this then? And the, the, the reason he gives, which I'm not going to go into in much detail, is that there are all kinds of things under the curse that are evils, that in God's providence, he works for certain kinds of goods, right? And he explicitly says this in the Torah. He says that, one, a false prophet's reveal insincerity, right? Why do we believe them so easily? And the answer is, it's because we want to. They're giving us an excuse to do what we already wanted to do. That's why we believe them so easily, and so it reveals that we were insincere all along, right? Secondly, it tests indecision, right? Those of us who say we believe in Jesus, we've professed faith in God, and then people come along and they tell us stuff that they say it's in God's name. They're like, you can be a Christian and believe this, and we're like, oh, I wonder if I can. And like you realize you're on the cusp because you can kind of smell that's not the gospel you received, right? It's like the gospel that you're going to take up your cross daily and die, that you're going to live in sacrificial love for others, the idea that you're going to treat others as better than yourself, that you're going to put aside selfish ambitions and vain conceit and in humility consider others better than yourself. Like like all of these kinds of teachings aren't going to comport with the false teaching. And you're going to realize you've got to make a choice. And so it's a test. It's the kind of test that makes you or breaks you. And then third, it strengthens the faithful. Fighting false teaching clarifies our belief. It's actually helpful for us because we have to know why it's wrong. We have to think about it. We have to fight it. We have to, we have to refute it. And we have to do the work of grappling with it. And it actually makes us deeper people. And for most of us, if we didn't have these problems, we would never think deep, any more deeply about the faith. We wouldn't grow intellectually as people. We wouldn't think through what's right or what's wrong. We wouldn't grow morally like we should. And so, so these, these anti- gospel teachings actually should be helpful for us in the long run as we grapple with them personally and they force us to grow. Now, if you follow through scriptures, there's so much teaching on this. Jesus says, for not just false teachers, but false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles, and they'll deceive everybody, even like the elect, if that was even possible. And he's like, he says, do not listen to them. When the son of man comes back, you're gonna know it, okay? In Matthew 7, 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Do you realize they're not going to say I'm a false prophet? In fact, most of the time, they're not even going to know they're a false prophet, at least not in the normal functioning of their conscious mind. Right? In Matthew 16, he says, Be careful, Jesus said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, that, and then, a few verses later, he says, Then they, the disciples, understood that he was not telling them to guard themselves against yeast and bread, but against the teachings <laughs> <coughs> of the Pharisees and said Jesus, right? Jesus' false teaching is like yeast. It like, gets in there. You don't really realize it's getting in there, and then it changes the nature of the whole thing, and you don't even realize that it's doing that. And that's happening to some of your faiths, is that you're, you're, not, you're not believing Jesus isn't the Christ, or the Bible is the opposite of the Word of God. What you're doing is you're allowing the yeast of little premises of the world to come into your faith, but they're not compatible with your faith's structure as revealed in scripture. And so it begins to make these, like, these little holes, and it begins to, like, problematize things, and you don't really know what those premises are, and so you think the problems must be with the bigger structure of the faith, which leads you more and more to find it more implausible, which ultimately leads you to believe that it's false. And you don't realize that's not because the faith is false, and that it's not coherent. It's because these little— yeast assumptions, premises have kind of come in. You didn't know they were incompatible with Christian faith. You didn't even know you're buying into them because oftentimes you get them from the structure of the study rather than just its direct teaching. And what it does is it affects the way you think about everything because you aren't on your guard or being careful, right? 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says, what I do I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim that those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as I do. He's basically saying there's a bunch of people who claim to be an apostle like me, and they boast like they are, but they don't do any stuff, right? And he says this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. He's like, you need to know who they are, and you need to know how to resist them, right? So, and he says this about those false leaders. It's no wonder, because even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light, right? See what he's saying? He's saying, listen, the devil himself doesn't come and say, I'm the devil, right? Devils and temptations come as positive propositions about how your life's going to be better, how everything's going to be good, and how you don't have to be so restrictive, and can't you just, right? He's like, now listen, if Satan does that, if devils do that, if temptation does it, what do you think is going to be the, the, the idiom or the way his emissaries function? People who are under his sway, they're going to behave like him. They're going to come as angels of light, and they're going to be numerous, and they're going to even say they're apostles or prophets or teachers. Right? Acts 20, he said— um, Paul is talking to the, the leaders of the Ephesian church, and he says to the shepherds of the church, be shepherds of the church, which he, that Jesus, bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. You see, he's saying there's going to be people who will look nice, but they're spirit. In reality, they're ravenous wolves. Their goal is to bring disciples after themselves rather than into the unity of the body of Christ's church, right? And um, therefore, you have to be on your guard. And that's people who will come from among us. Does that make sense? And we can go on and on and on. I better just keep going here. Okay, you can look at that later. Um, this is number two, by the way. Um, no, wait, that is one. So that's review. So secondly, false teachers— <laughs> False teachers are cynical or self-deceived opportunists. The way um, false teachers and false prophets are portrayed is that they are opportunists, right? If you think of the three um, ways they're referred to in Ezekiel 13, one is they're referred to as jackals in in the cities. Think about that, right? Jackals, they love destroyed civilizations because there's all these places they can go in. They mainly eat rodents. Rodents are everywhere in like ruins, right? And um, nobody lives there. So they they benefit from the destruction of human society, the complete destruction of everything else. The only body who gets anything from these ruined cities are the jackals themselves, right? That's it. And they don't care. They don't care, right? And he's saying that's what false teachers and false prophets are like. They don't care about you. They don't care about the body of Christ. They they just—they're like jackals, right? And he says, he says, how do we know this? He says, because they don't encourage you to fill in the holes in the wall for the day of battle. See what I'm saying? Now think about this. What is a prophet supposed to do? Right? We're not all bad in every possible way, right? Look, if we, if we sat and we thought, what's wrong with us personally, in our families, as High Point Church, as a city, as a society? We're like, what's wrong with us? It wouldn't be everything, right? It would be a, like very specific things. Right? Like having a wall around a city and having some holes in it. So the job of the prophet is to say, hey, you guys, there's a hole right there. Like, we need to fill that hole. Otherwise, the whole rest, all these other good things that we do, all these other good things about us aren't going to avail anything because when that army comes to kill us, they're not going to fight against all the places where we have wall. They're going to go fight against a place where we don't have wall. So the job of the prophet is to say, you guys, you see that hole? We need to fill that hole. Like, really well. And he's like, the reason I know you're a false prophet, God says, is because nobody does that. Nobody's doing it. You're not actually pointing out the holes in the wall. You don't care. You're like jackals, right? And then the third is whitewashing a wall. It's supposed to paint on it, right? So, so people, like, they put up something that's supposed to be a structure that'll bear weight. That is, will save your life or lead to something good or be true, right? But they don't. They put up something rickety, something bad. And, and the false prophet comes along and be like, look, we can make this look good. We we'll can make this look good. And because they're clever, because they're opportunists, They'll make something that's really just death standing look good Just Put, a, put some put some on it Look at that, looks fantastic Right? Instead of saying, this needs to get torn down And we need to build something with some structural integrity That's the job of a prophet The prophet's job is not staging They're not interior decorators Right? They are inspectors They're like, you got to take this whole wall out You got to take out all this stuff We need another beam in here Or you can't do anything. I'll be taking your permit away. Like, that's what a prophet is. A prophet is the inspector. They are not the stager. And when when a teacher, a pastor, a prophet, somebody who stands in a place where they're they're exhorting you in God's name is is putting whitewash on something without structural integrity, they're killing you. But, man, a nice coat of paint looks awesome. When was the last time you painted something? You remember the last time you painted something? And you got done painting it, and it looked awesome. You felt so good, right? That's what it feels like when people lie to you, when false prophets teach you truths in God's name that are completely wrong. It feels fantastic. It's very attractive. And that wall is gonna fall down, right? Now, some of you might say, yeah, but Nick, I've, I, like, I've talked to people who would fall, biblically speaking, doctrinally, under false prophet or false teacher, but, like, they're really sincere. They're really caring. They feel like really, really nice people. They feel, like, way nicer than you. I mean, I don't mean to be mean, but, like, they're, like, they're nicer than me. They're nicer than you. And, uh, like, listen, I would just stipulate that. They probably are. Right? And that's really not relevant. The relevant thing is whether or not, in God's name, on the basis of what he's actually said, are they telling the truth relative to the actual holes in the wall, or to call out the whitewash on the wall that's going to fall down and kill everybody. The opportunists or not. And so one of the things to, to recognize is that throughout this passage, there are numerous places where God says, you are liars, but then he also assumes they are self-deceived enough that they're actually being kind of sincere. Right, he, right, there's one place where he's like, you prophesy out of your imagination, right? So he's saying, yeah, like, you kind of worked yourself up spiritually to feel like you saw something, right? Like, in your mind. And you're like, well, I wouldn't have imagined that without God. And then you're like, that must be God speaking to me. And so I'm going to say it, and it's, like, wrong. But it, like, he's like, listen, it doesn't make it better. <laughs> he's like, listen, I realize, like, when you do that, it feels really sincere. It doesn't make it better. It's a false divination. It's a lie, but you're being sincere. Like, I get that, but you're being sincere because you're self-deceived, right? Similarly, he says, um, some of these people, they give lying prophecies and false divinations, and they expect me to do it, right? Like, think about that. They're like, they've come up with this sort of like, out of their own imagination, out of kind of like what they sort of think. They've convinced themselves that maybe like God believes it, and then they kind of say it, and then they think God's going to actually like, do it? He's like, how delusional can you be? And the answer is, we're humans, like, really delusional. <laughs> we're really good at this, you know? And I mean, scripturally speaking, there's not a lot of teaching about how prophets in different eras actually receive messages, right? It, it was in dreams, and it was like somehow words that they received like in their inner being somehow, and if you're not a prophet, like let's, let's say like you're not a prophet, but you have like internal spiritual feelings and beliefs, like, but you've never been a prophet and you don't know what that feels like, and you're like, maybe this is what it feels like. It would be really easy to think and persuade yourself that you are doing something that was like spiritually valid, even if it wasn't, right? Now, when I say that, I am not picking on people seeking to act in the gift of prophecy right now, okay? I do believe prophecy comes through internal impressions that are from the Lord that have to be discerned, right? But that's true for teachers and pastors and anybody who speaks for God. How did you get that knowledge? And if you, if you're wrong, but it's in continuity with what God has already taught, you're probably not doing any damage. The problem here is, is like, they are saying something that's not given to them from God, but also it's against what God is actually teaching. So if you, like, you have an internal impression that you need to tell somebody that Jesus loves them, and that isn't actually the Holy Spirit prophetically revealing that to you, it doesn't matter. You understand? It doesn't matter. If you want to tell somebody not to quit, if you want to tell somebody that, like, God is for them in dealing with these things in their life, that they, they care about, like, what you're struggling with, that, like, and you, like, feel like a word, like, inside of you, whether that's you trying to love them, produce, like, or whether that's the Spirit, or whether, whether the Spirit's working in your conscience, that doesn't matter. Do you understand? Because if what you're speaking is in line with the scriptures and it's circumstantially encouraging and helpful, whether it's an encouragement or whether it has a prophetic touch to it doesn't really matter. But when you start saying stuff like, our church should do this instead of that, or that person's evil, or this is this or that, or this person's going to get elected president, or something like that, that, like then it gets real touchy. You understand? Okay, I need to keep moving. But like, here's the point I'm trying to make here, and it's really important. Most of the false prophets and teachers that you will interact with will be compelling, and they will feel really sincere, and it's because they are sincere and compelling. Do you understand? That's why God has given so much explicit revelation in speaking and showing himself in what he believes is true so that we have a voluminous amount of revelation to compare these words with so that we can know whether or not they're true or false. Because he knows. It's really easy. and We want to believe people that we find engaging and sincere and interesting. Right? The third is is that God is against false prophets. He just refers, listen, I'm going to kill you. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm against you, and I'm against the things you said. Right? I'm against you, and I'm against the things you said. Right? Now, I'm going to skip this because I kind of covered it in different ways, and I want to get to some things that are direct. So first, I'm going to give you two generic and two specific examples of what I would consider false prophecy and false teaching. Um, too generic and too specific because I want to, like— help you think through it by moving from examples to other examples. And I frankly want to say these two examples, because I think— like at some point I have to be like, you guys, do not be deceived by this. And it is affecting huge swaths of people in the church. In fact, I would argue—I don't know what number put on it— maybe 85 percent of Christians are affected by one or the other of the specific false teachings that I'm going to refer to. So first let's do the generic ones. Sometimes the false prophet is just self-glorifying. They're just into themselves. They're like a charismatic person, and like it says in Acts 20, they're just trying to win disciples after themselves because they're an opportunist. And you have to learn to smell out these self-interested people, right? Secondly, there's really self, self-assured and sincerely wrong people. This would be like a super legalistic fundamentalist Christian who believes, about, like by adding more and more restrictions, we're going to be more and more Christian. And like they really believe that. They're like a Pharisee in the New Testament where like, like if I protect people from sin by putting more rules, then we'll be more godly. And scripture explicitly says that isn't how it works, right? But like they're really, they really feel that like that's good. Or like, like people on the other side, they're like, well, let's not have any rules and people should just follow their spiritual selves and stuff. And like, we don't have to do the stuff God explicitly says. It's like we should like, and they're really self-assured about it. And they feel like that's what God wants. And they, 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 but they're, they're just wrong. They're, they're not teaching in continuity with what God has already spoken and shown about himself, right? And so there's lots of those. Now, I want to talk about two specific ones that are very prominent right now in America, and most people are affected seductively by at least one of them, and some of us by both of them. I mean, I'll just tell you emotionally, I'm a little bit—I a I little bit want to fall for both of them, Okay? Um, the first is what I'll call dominionist Christianity. This is the kind of stuff that would fall under like Christian nationalism. Um, so like, like for example, there were a number of like people with prophetic ministries in America that prophesied that President Trump would become the president again. Okay, and like one guy prophesied, he had the dream that the Dodgers would win the World Series, Amy Coney Barrett would be on the Supreme Court, and Trump would win elections the second time. And the first two things like happened, which like, the Dodgers, you know? And then, um, so he was like, he felt like he had heard from the Lord, you know? And, and listen, these prophets did not say that Trump, in the secrecy of what really happened, would receive more votes than President Biden. They said he would be elected and in inaugurate, okay? And so, um, and so some of them, after that happened, they were like, oh, yeah, I was, I was, I was wrong. And they got, some of them got death threats. And a number of them said, when I apologize for being obviously empirically wrong for making that prophecy— I took way more flack for apologizing than for being wrong. Right? And, and the, the false teaching of the heresy that is under this is not being a Republican. It's not even liking the structures of Christendom that are primarily European. Like maybe we need to get rid of those. Maybe. That's a prudential question that is, has nothing to do with Christianity in a way. Okay? In fact, some people have referred to a certain kind of American, what they call white supremacy— I don't think it's technically white supremacy, but they refer to it as Christendom without Christianity. Does that make sense? That like all this like European Western society stuff that's like, you know, it's not bad. There's a lot of good stuff there, right? That that thing in which a lot of European descent people have really prospered in, they like that cultural structure because there's a lot that's good about it, and they want to keep it, right? But they're not Christians. Like, they're not ready to die for the Lord Jesus. They're not ready to love their neighbor as themselves, no matter what color they are, no matter where they're from. They're not, they're not willing to reach out to all nations and all tribes and tongues, even the ones that want to kill us, and bring the gospel of Christ to them. They're not, they're not willing to recognize that things are going to change as time changes. They're not, they want, they want to keep Christendom, but they don't want to be Christians. And that's bad. (laughs) And they believe in wanting to keep Christendom. They identify that with Christendom taking dominion over America, quote again. I don't know if it'll be again or the first time if that happens, um, but that's what they want, and they, and and like you can understand that. Like that's not crazy. It's just not Christian. Do you understand? Christianity has no governmental policy. It's attached to no fundamental culture. Like there are a thousand different faithful expressions of Christianity. Otherwise, everybody who gets saved in India has to be like English. Like that's not going to work. You understand? Christianity is specifically designed to be very malleable in what sort of society can function in, because we're supposed to be, as the Bible says, exiles, not lords. Jesus assumes everywhere we go on the earth in the New Testament period, we'll be the minority. We won't have control, and our main work will be a prophetic one. That is, outside of the power structure, without the power to make people do what's right, but with the truth that God gives us through the revelation of his son and the work of his spirit in us, so that we can in our lives be a prophetic witness, a city on a hill, and in our words speak the truth to the society in which we live. Willing to suffer and die as exiles and foreigners, because remember, what are we? Ambassadors. We are people who speak to one government on behalf of another. We, and that's not America to everybody else. It's the kingdom of God, King Jesus, to all the kingdoms of the world that are all already condemned eschatologically. There, do you realize there's no future for America? Not eschatologically speaking. Maybe, maybe we can do that a couple hundred years. That'd be fantastic, okay? And maybe we can come up with some kind of like thing where like, Everybody can be part of a society, and there can be a lot of things that has made America good, and we could get rid of all the things that had made America not good, and maybe we come with some really awesome thing. It would still just be one kind of expression of how Christian faith could affect a society of humans, and there could be 10,000 of those. And if we, like, lose America, whatever that means, that doesn't change anything about our faith. It might make it harder in some ways. It might make it easier in some ways. It might make us— more easy to fall into nominalism. It might make us more faithful because we're actually getting killed. I don't know. It might make us more compassionate about Uyghurs who are getting slaughtered. It might change something really good, right? But there's nothing in the New Testament that would make us believe that we are going to achieve dominion. And when you realize we'll be exiles, not in dominion, the idea that any figure, whether you think he's like a pagan Cyrus or like a second coming of, of King David, whatever you think, There is no king that is coming to save us other than Jesus. And you can be all that and you can vote Republican in every single election. Without fail, Republican, 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 Republican. I don't even know that person's name, but they're a Republican. Like you you can totally vote that way and you can believe what I just said. You can, you can believe that certain prudential things are important. They are more than not encapsulated in the Republican platform, and you can, or you can trust that candidate more than the other one, and you can vote that way and not be captured by the tribalistic false prophecies of Dominionist Christianity, which is not Christianity. Okay, now it's, now it's time to make everybody else mad, okay? (laughs) The second is um, what some people are calling progressive Christianity. By that, I do not mean that you are a Christian and you voted Democrat, okay? A person, a Christian who looks at things in the philosophy of progressivism and judging them on the basis of the truth of the gospel and scripture, selects certain things that are real reforms that we should take seriously and consider, and then throws away everything else like they do with all the world's philosophies, that's not a progressive Christian, that's a Christian. Do you understand? That's a Christian. We're supposed to do that with all the philosophies of the world, and so you can go, and you can look at progressive and you can be like, you know, we should consider that. And like, yes, we should move a little bit in this direction, and you know, that's a helpful insight, and right? Or like, most of this is right, that's how I'm going to vote. Either way. But here's the thing. There is no such thing as anything Christian. There is no progressive Christian. There is no conservative Christian. If the word that comes before Christian means Christianity is judged on the basis of this philosophy— The problem with progressive Christianity as a cultural phenomenon is that the progressivism judges the Christianity rather than the Christianity judging the progressivism. If the progressivism judges the Christianity, that is called idolatry. That's what that's called. And that is happening a lot, especially people under 30. And listen, I get it. I get it. We always want to capitulate to the philosophy that's in ascendancy and that controls the culture. You may be like, Nick, it's like 50-50. It's not 50-50, okay? It's not 50-50. All of the things that are the controlling hierarchies of the culture are possessed by progressive ideology in America right now. All the media, all the art, all the government. You may be like, not the government. No, the government. All the people who inhabit the bureaucracies of the American government, which is millions of employees are predominantly pro-large government, and the policies go along this. Listen, I was reading my wife's um, Social Work and Social Policy textbook, okay? The Communist Manifesto is more conservative than that. It is unbelievable the things that that book said, and that is just the standard textbook you read in your introductory class on social policy and social, in th- social work. Listen, we need Christian social workers. Social work is an important noble profession. The helping professions are noble professions. They are like philosophically gone right now. Do you understand? And so what has to happen as believers is we're going to have to look at the scriptures. And here's the main problem. Here's why it's so deceiving. Remember I said before, it's like, it's like yeast. Like these little presumptions get in. You don't deny Jesus is Lord or scripture is true. It's like these premises get in. They undermine things. What it is, is a change in an understanding of what a human being is. That's what it is. It's the belief that human beings are fundamentally malleable. You can be whatever you want to be. It's the belief at the same time, biologically, they're completely unmalleable, that they just are what they already are. It's the belief that there's no objectivist moral claim on human beings and very little inherent moral capacity in human beings. There is a very strong idea of neurological determinism. You just are what your brain does. There are people putting forward policies that like, if you can tell neurologically that somebody's going to do bad stuff, you just preemptively put them in prison because they're, like, haters gonna hate. You know what I mean? Like, just, people are going to do what their neurology tells them to do. Like, there—there there, there is a Christian way to be communitarian. There is a Christian way to say everybody should have enough. There is a Christian way to care about those who are not in the ascendancy or in the incumbency who are what we call disenfranchised in the society. There are ways in which Christians should care about that, which we should engage with, and we should help people relative to it. There's a lot in the democratic platform, and in what we generally refer to as broadly as progressive, that is helpful, correct, useful, interesting. But that—no philosophy can judge the Christ, or you aren't a Christian. It says in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we take every thought and hold it captive to King Jesus. Demolishing the stronghold, that is, the hierarchical controls these philosophies will take over us, as displayed by their false prophets, to us. And there's a whole movement of in churches like ours, of people coming in, like, we should deconstruct our faith, and we should problematize it. we should blah 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 blah. And what all that means is is that somebody who's already figured out how to ruin other people's faith ambushes normal people who haven't been through that process, and there's nobody there to speak for the gospel, who's intelligent, educated enough to like, kick people's butt who try to do that to you. That's so what happens when a lot of our young people go to college. It's not like the secular argument's that fantastic. It's just, there's no voice for the non-secular one. And so they go and they're like, well, this person, this is smarter than my youth pastor, so, or has a better degree, or I hear this everywhere. Everybody seems to be going along with this. This must be right, and it's not. It's a whitewashed wall, It's some of the very people that want to help us in the problems we're in right now are literally the people who made these problems. One of the biggest frustrations with this secular philosophy, they have destroyed people's lives by destroying the things that make life good. And then, now, like, the average teenager is more anxious and depressed than psychiatric patients in the 1950s, and they want to help us fix that. They created that. And so, but listen— So what's the heart of the matter? Okay, let me just get that real quick. What's the heart of the matter? I don't want to fight. I want you to tell me that I'm a good person. I want you to tell me that my life is going to be easy. That's what I want. I don't, I don't, I don't want to fight. Okay, like I don't want to have to do this every day. So you want to tell me that, you want me to tell you that you can say that you're a woman if you're a man? Fine. Like especially if you really feel that. Okay, okay, okay. If you want to say that like, it doesn't matter? Just, I'm just like non-binary. I'm just like whatever I want to be, kind of whatever. Mo- just, like, that's how I feel because it's—, it's re- look, Listen, it's incredibly difficult to be a teenage girl right now. Why wouldn't you just want to be like, I'm just whatever I need to be at the moment? Why wouldn't you do that? Right? I get it. And I get that you want me to just go, okay. And I want to because I don't want to fight. I want you to tell me I'm a good person, and I don't want there to be all this stress. Right? And I also don't want to fight for the soul of my country. I want like some bombastic person to come and beat everybody else up for me. So that everybody can be the way it's supposed to be, because that person did what I was supposed to do by shedding my own blood and sacrifice for others to win them over. That person can just yell at them. We can get done. Wouldn't that be great? Right? Except it would poison everything because true prophetic words cannot proceed on the basis of power. Tolkien understood that, Acton, Lord, Acton understood that, Jesus understood that, Paul understood that, all of the great saints have understood that. The prophetic word of truth cannot proceed on the basis of power. Dominionist power, progressive cultural heights power, it can't proceed on the basis of power. And you are going to have to decide whether or not you are going to reject these false teachings. You're going to reject these false prophets. I don't know when God is going to tear down these whitewashed walls. He, he tore down one a couple years ago. Praise the Lord. And I hope soon, in some meaningful way, he will tear down the other one. But we're just going to get new ones, y'all. <laughs> There's just going to be new, non-truthful, new whitewashed walls. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Remember Jesus said about the prophets? What was, what, what? What did Jesus say all the prophets had in common, including him? Suffering, but a very specific kind of suffering—death. He said, was there ever a prophet you, the church, didn't kill, and now you're going to kill me too? And they did. So Paul says in Philippians 3, in his desire to follow Christ and to recognize the righteousness he's received from God through faith, he says, becoming like Jesus in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen, if you're a young person and you want, you want to buy into that stuff you're being taught at school, like, I, like listen, I get that. You want to believe that for yourself. You want to call yourself those things. Because it is so hard to be like a boy or a girl or to be masculine or feminine or like, to actually speak the truth when you can't even reproduce the argument. You didn't even know what you would say. Like, it's terrifying, and you know how people are going to treat you. You know darn well how you're going to be treated if you don't go along with that stuff. I, I, I understand it's terrifying. I, I get it. I get it. It's still false. It's a lie. And what happens to the soul of people who are willing to believe lies, to accept them, to take them in? To make them part of themselves. What happens? Right? Solzhenitsyn, who spent time in the gulag, who was hated by most of Russia his whole life. Like, everybody wanted to kill him. And he said, he said, evil lives and survives on the willingness of people to just put up with lies. People who know that speaking the truth will cost them, so they just don't say anything. Right? And so the good say nothing and the bold control everything. And I'm not telling you what to do. I mean, you may not be called to be a prophet, (laughs) but you're not called to listen to false prophets. You're not called to believe false prophets. You're not called to follow false prophets. You are called to pursue wisdom so you won't be taken in by them. You are called to discern the difference between false teachers and false prophets and true teachers and true prophets. You are called to understand that the ends never justify the means in the kingdom, and that if anybody says they do, they're a false prophet, whether they have a red hat or a blue hat on. And there is no shortcut to knowing your God so that you know the counterfeit when you see it. If you just come as far as you believe in Jesus, he must have died for our sins, that's fantastic. And that's as far as you go. The problem is is that you don't know anything about the God you're worshiping. Only by sustained study of the scriptures, sustained study of what God is like, who he is, what he's like, knowing him, praying to him, having a real relationship with him, being around other wise Christians, growing in the shared teaching of the church, and all that kind of thing, availing yourself of this developmental stuff, allows you to know God, like, with shape and form, three-dimensionally, in the multifaceted nature of his glories, so that when, when something that is false is said, it like, doesn't even start to affect you. You're like, that is below it. My, Jesus is nothing like that. Yeah, Jesus said one th- thing over here that kind of goes along with what you said, but then he said like 75 things over here. Like one of the reasons why people can manipulate the image of Jesus in your hearts and minds politically so easily is you don't know what Jesus said. So people are like, don't you know Jesus was like against the status quo? Yeah, when it was wrong. And then a lot of times he was for it. And then like you have no idea what Jesus really taught. <laughs> like most of the time they'll quote Jesus and it's like if that's the only Jesus ever said, it would leave that impression. But Jesus said a bunch of other things and had apostles that said other things and was in line with the Old Testament that said other things. And if you read that whole thing together, it doesn't say what you're saying. But you have to know this whole book. Okay, and and so, okay, I'm going to do a little self-promotion right here. You are welcome to go against what I'm going to say right now, okay? You are totally welcome to go against what I'm going to say right now. Please do not feel pressured by this. I'm just going to make an argument. This is the real reason I picked Devin to be the associate pastor candidate. So real. this is the real reason, okay? She's a PhD in an incredibly progressive place, amidst classmates that were LGBTQ, all kinds of ethnicities and genders, um, teaching all kinds of stuff with all kinds of philosophies, right? And he came out believing the scriptures, but knowing how to love people like that. And he knows every page of this book, and how it interrelates with itself, and he's thought through for thousands and thousands of hours, and I just frankly believe we need as much of that as we can get. Because we live in a time where it's really difficult to know the truth and to be set free by it, and to not be intimidated by people who are trying to intimidate us. In the end, the only way you cannot believe the false prophets is actually not how much you know though. In the end, you have to be willing to walk with Jesus to his death. You have to love him that much, and you have to believe that there's a resurrection on the other side of the tomb. That if your good name is destroyed, if your career is destroyed, if your education is destroyed, if people like say they they can't even look at you because of what you believe because of Christ, you have to be willing to receive that and to do what the Apostles didn't act for. It says that after they were whipped for believing in Jesus and speaking his name, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's not until pietistically, emotionally, in the depth of your heart, you would rejoice to be whipped in the name of Jesus because I mean you were something like him. To have everything taken from you, just like everything was taken from him. That's the only way you'll be emotionally ready to look at a classmate or to be derided by a teacher or to be denied a promotion or to be attacked by your colleagues. Is if you don't just believe in Jesus, but you are you are ready and willing to suffer in his name and re- re- rejoice to do so. Are you there? Are you there? Are you ready for that? We have to fall more in love with his truth, his justice, and his glory. To do that. God, as we, um, as we take some time to, to sing and to try to just reflect on this, I pray that you would work in us. I pray that um, if there are folks who are just angry that I attacked the political side they're possessed by, that because um, maybe I didn't do it what great, uh, I pray that you'd help them just get past that. That that's not your message to them. That your message to that is bigger and it's the biblical message. It's from this passage and all these other passages and that you want to teach them, even if they think I was clumsy with it. Help us be engaged with you. Help us to remember what you said in the Bible, not what Nick said on Sunday. And help us to embrace and grapple with you so that whether we are confessing you and paying no cost or confessing you and paying every cost. We would find a thankful joy rolling up inside of us instead of a great anxiety because we are yours in a more deep way. And I pray that the joy that comes from that would overflow in your church and among us each. In Jesus' name.